You're listening to Proselytize. Or Proselytize. guys, welcome to another episode of the show. Today we're taking a little break from the normal debates on apologetics and that sort of thing. And we're doing a Skype interview with my friend Matthew Milioni from Boston, Massachusetts. Enjoy. Tiny tight music. Yeah, so Matthew is part of a movement of Christians um, that kind of re- loosely refer to themselves as Kingdom Christians, and I've been interested in this this movement for some time now. It's very it's similar in some ways to uh, the denomination that I grew up in, which is conservative Anabaptism, and so yeah, I've been kind of following this movement, attending uh, a conference called Kingdom Fellowship Weekend, where a lot of them gather. And I started interacting with Matthew on Facebook and just thought it'd be really cool to kind of hear his story and um, some of his views and, and how he, he got there. Um, so let, let's just start out, Matthew. Um, why don't you just kind of share your testimony? I know you have uh, a story of, of coming out of a very interesting past. So why don't, why don't we just start there and get to know you a little bit? Sure. Um, <clears throat> it's a long story. I so I, I grew up in uh, uh, a fundamental independent Baptist home. I, uh, my grandfather was the old school fundamental independent Baptist preacher when, when that movement first started in the 50s. Uh-huh. So my father grew up a preacher's kid, and then I was spent all my life until I was a teenager in, in uh, not nominal. I mean, we were in... Yeah at church three day three times a week and never missed a Sunday and there you know dad was on the he was an usher and a trustee and on all the boards and went to a, a Christian school in my primary years all that stuff mm-hmm. uh, learned the Bible pretty well um, and I'm grateful for that yeah but the uh, the the fatal flaw for me was was the teaching on eternal security uh, that mixed with a lack of really seeing and understanding conversion. Um, When I, I think the way I grew up, the, the idea of being a Christian, you know, they talked about conversion was a biblical idea, you know, Saul's conversion, whatever. But I, I guess I kind of just defaulted to the idea that that was only for people who, had never been in the church because uh-huh. for me they said what it means to be a christian is to believe that jesus christ was born in the was god in the flesh that he lived a perfect life that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose again on the third day and if you believe that you're a christian if you don't believe that you're whatever else yeah 
And I never didn't believe that. I mean, as long as I knew my name was Matthew and I lived wherever I lived, my address and my phone number, and I was a Christian, and that's all that meant to me. And mm-hmm. I thought all those things were kind of in the same category. So I entered into my real, like, m- moral, ethical awakenings with that default premise. And I think that's a, that's a very, very dangerous place to for your moral conscience to awaken. So mm-hmm. I had a, you know, like a five-year-old conversion and baptism and, and then was a Christian. So yeah. when, I, when I got out on my own then and could make choices for myself in my later teenage years and fell in with the wrong crowd, started partying and all that stuff, I did so as a Christian because it didn't affect my, my uh, intellectual assent to the idea that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again on the third day. Those yeah. things never altered, so I never ceased to be a Christian. So that was, uh, I know that I know that that's not indicative of everyone that's in those circles, but it's, I think it's exemplary of a lot of people in those circles. And it w- was certainly true of me. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, I started down the parting road in high school. And then when I was a senior, I met a girl. I'd never met a girl like her before. Um, she was a runaway. She happened to come to my school and I was intrigued with her. We had some mutual friends. We started hanging out. We started dating. Turns out she was a skinhead and she had run away from her home. Uh, and I, I found out eventually she was only 15 years old. She'd been living on the streets for most of a year. Wow. So that was um, that was Erica. And she was just a tough as nails girl. And mm-hmm. her and I started um, living together and running together. We were in the same same circles and same gang eventually together and we lived a really raucous life for quite a few years about three or four years which three years which is about a generation for uh for a skinhead gang yeah so i i know not everybody knows what skinheads are but it's essentially a white gang a white street gang and um very violent subculture um Yeah, I don't know what else to say about that time, except for that. I think the thing that that's interesting to me all these years later is that I did not go from from you know a Sunday school happy, contented child at sixteen to waking up who knows where, grabbing for a cigarette and trying to figure out why my eye was blackened and where I was and what had happened the night before that didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It, it was an incremental process. And I, I remember a time in my life waking up one of those mornings and being like, how did I get here? How did I go from where I was to where I am? And not even hardly able to put all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. We'll say the other, the other thing about that time in my life is that I was, um, I was a young man who never really felt like I had my own identity. I was I was smart enough that I didn't really have to try at school, but I wasn't I couldn't hang out with the brainy kids. I wrestled, but I wasn't really a jock and I partied, but I didn't really fit in with the party kids. I kind of morphed from here to there. 
Mm-hmm. And when I fell in with that gang, it was the first time in my life when I felt like this is really who I am. Yeah. Now, my wife has the opposite background as me. Um, I come from a very happy middle class home. And uh, my wife comes from a single parent home, a lot of tension and, and violence in her home and none in mine. Um, and I think, <clears throat> you know, if you had looked at, if you'd looked at Erica's life when she was a baby and you'd played out the, you know, you read out the first 15 years of her life. And then you said, the conclusion is she's going to be a skinhead. You'd be like, okay, I get that. Yeah. But that is not the case with my life. So what happened then after living that lifestyle for quite a few years in very tumultuous situations and circumstances, a lot of debauchery and sin, um, Eric and I got married. And shortly after we got married, Erica had a dynamic, miraculous religious experience that I wasn't a part of. I wasn't there. There was no gospel presentation God just happened to, in his mercy, speak to her. And that's a story all in and of itself. She mm-hmm. called me one night at, at, at work. Well, let me back up a little, I'll tell you a story. One night we were out and, um, and we'd gotten in a fight. And it was just Eric and I, the kids we were with ran off. And we ended up, she was surrounded by a gang of young boys and girls. And I was surrounded by a gang of men. And we we thought we were going to die and um and we didn't end up dying that night we something happened and things changed and um and we ended up fleeing that situation and we ended up back in our room later that night and erica told me she said so if we would have died tonight what would have happened i said well i would have gone to heaven and you would have gone to hell and she said, well, well, how does that work? I was like, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and you don't. She said, well, that's stupid. I said, why don't you just do it? Like, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and then you can go to heaven. She's like, I... so we live the same life. We die the same way. We do the same stuff, but you get to go to heaven, and I go to hell. I said, yeah. She's like, that's stupid. And I, <laughs> and and she was right. Yeah. It is stupid, but that's, that's where I was. So fast forward, then she has a, so I was always kind of like this Christian pretense, but Christian, like I was Italian or like I lived in the Northwest, you know, or like I was an American. So she has this religious experience and I was working a night shift. We'd, we'd just gotten married and she calls me at work and she said, Matthew, all this crazy stuff happened. And she tells me the whole story. And she said, Matthew, God loves me. And I was waiting for the punchline. And I was like, yeah, I know. I've told you that before. And she's like, no, you don't understand what I mean. God loves me. And I said, I know, Eric, I've told you that before. And she said, no, you don't understand. He loves me. And I was like, okay, what do you want to do? What, do, what am I supposed to do with that? She's like, I don't know. You're the Christian. You're supposed to know what to do with this stuff. So I was like, do you want to go to church? And she's like, yeah, let's go to church. I was like, okay. So we found the closest little, actually, the first time I took Erica to church, it was a little Pentecostal church. 
we went on a Wednesday night. My car was broken down. It was the closest thing we could walk to. It was winter. And we went in there, and it was like 12 70-year-olds. And, <laughs> I, you know, the kind of Baptist I grew up, like, you got to worry about your soul if you raise your hands when you're praying. And this was a Pentecostal <laughs> service, and I was like, I ain't, I'm, I don't have nothing to do with this. <laughs> so we left there, and I was like, that, that ain't going to work. And uh, we found the closest little local Baptist church and went down there. And Erica was so funny, you know, she didn't have any of the prejudices or or preconceived ideas about the gospel, about the scriptures, about church, about any of these things mm-hmm. that I did. And, you know, every every uh, for those of you that are familiar with fundamental churches, every single sermon ends with a sinner's prayer, a call for yeah. sinner's prayer. And so every Sunday, the preacher would say, with every head bow and every eyes closed, if you want to be 100% sure that if you die tonight, you go to heaven, raise your hand. And Erica was there getting saved every week, like <laughs> just for months. It was like the preacher was finally like, anybody out there, anybody but Erica, anybody else. <laughs> getting born again, again, yeah. like Shane Claiborne says. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, what happened then, Erica had a radical conversion. And what I realized later is that I I knew of some people in our in the church that I grew up in who had rough lives when they were young. But now when they were old people, I hadn't ever really watched a conversion happen. I'd never seen somebody change. And and Erica did for real. Yeah. And uh, and it was interesting to me. Um just because it was new because of our history she would ask me about the scriptures because i knew the scriptures well i'd learned them from my youth mm-hmm. and so we would have conversations uh you know i'd come home from work and it was just me and her and we'd talk about the bible uh-huh. well, i came home from work one night and you know erica was a seventh grade dropout seventh i don't even know if she finished the seventh grade so she has a very low education level at this time. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and she's reading the King James Bible because we're Baptist people and that's what we read. And um, and she, she didn't know how to cross-reference. She didn't know nothing about the Bible. In fact, when she first started reading the Bible, that's what I told her that night. She called me. I said, well, start reading the Bible. So she reads through Matthew and then she reads through Mark, and then she's reading through Luke, and she calls me on the phone one day, and she says, Matthew, is the Bible just the same story over and over again? And I was like, no, read Romans or something. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so I come home from work one night, and she says, hey, I want to talk about some scriptures. And I say, okay. And she hands me her notebook, and she had written out a whole page or two of scriptures that were written in her own hand. Uh-huh. And she says, um, I read through them, and they're all they're all conversion scriptures, basically. Behold, if any man be in Christ, all things are made new. Children of the light, children of the darkness, all these scriptures. And uh-huh. I read through them, and I say, okay, so what's your question? And she says, with no guile, with complete honesty, she says, there's something different about me. And I just don't think that I could do the things that we used to do anymore. Uh-huh. But you did all those things, and you were a Christian, and I don't know how that's possible. And I took a deep breath and I said, the answer I was supposed to say, I said, well, I was backslid then, but once you're saved, you're always saved. And I remember the time when I asked Jesus into my heart and, 
you know, here it is written in the back of my little five-year-old Bible and it's all cool. Everything's, we're going back to church now and our lives are getting better and we left all that. And so it's all cool. And she didn't quite believe me. And for the first time, I didn't quite believe me. Uh And on that list of scriptures that she gave me was a a verse in first John one, six says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And that particular verse just stuck with me for weeks. I could, I woke up with it. I went to bed with it. I worked with it. I showered with it. I, everything I did, that scripture just ran through my mind because I felt like, I felt like for the first time the scriptures were speaking to me, for one. But yeah. for two, I felt like God had written a verse about me, and it was not comforting. Because I knew that I called myself a Christian. We say that we have fellowship with him. And I knew that I was living in darkness uh-huh. equals a liar. And so I just had this constant, ominous feeling of God himself calling me a liar all day, every day. And that finally put me in a place where I was willing to reconsider. And I had to get to a place where I was willing to scrub the whole thing. And you know what I finally said was, I I believe, like mental ascent believe, that Jesus is the Son of God and died for my sins, whatever that means. Yeah. But it has zero impact in my life. Like I can believe this lampstand is made out of wood or metal and it would be indifferent to me. In fact, I said, you know, for all the good it's done me to be a Christian, I could have been a Buddhist, but I would have been a better person if I'd been a Buddhist. So what good is the Christianity that I've learned up to this point in my early 20s done me? And I said, you know, it has to be the case that either Christianity is a farce, a fable, or it's about somebody instead of something and it was that idea that christianity could be about somebody instead of something that really captivated my mind and my heart One thing I do want to get into is um, kind of as I've been interacting with people from sort of the Kingdom Christian movement, uh, one thing that, that keeps coming up again and again is, you know, the church before Constantine, you know, the, the early church. And, and it seems like the way um, you guys understand Christianity is that it was a, a fairly pure church up until uh the church and state got married essentially and i've also i've even heard ideas that like you know christianity is so divided today we we can't get to the truth necessarily just by studying the bible 
the way to get to the truth is to go back and and look at what the early church believed because the early church uh, were direct descendants of the apostles' teachings. They often mm. knew people who knew the apostles, so they would have um, been a lot closer to that. Um, it, it's kind of a an epistemology of its own. It's a way of understanding truth that I had never really thought about a whole lot before. So is that kind of a caricature of how what a lot of you guys believe, or does that pretty much sum up um, how you get to your theological um, understandings? Well, I think it's an oversimplification. Let's start with the term kingdom Christian first. The, the term kingdom Christian, which is ironically becoming a label of its own, yeah. I think when it started, the, 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 the moniker kingdom Christian, and, you know, I can't speak authoritatively because who's speaking for the kingdom Christian movement? Nobody yeah. is. That's kind of the point to it. But what it what it was, I think what it was supposed to represent was a return to the idea of Jesus as a real and present king. And yeah. that really is a very old Christian idea. It is the original Christian idea that <clears throat> Jesus was not a, a hero figure. He was not he was not a savior alone but that he was a real and political entity who is currently reigning over a nation that we call the church. And if you believe that premise, there are a whole host of other things that go along with that, that general principle. So, so if, so, okay. Kingdom Christian and the idea that Jesus is a king. So what did he set up? And the fact that he set something up instead of just a ticket to heaven, but he actually sets up a, a, a visible nation on earth, a rival nation in certain respects, across borders and across time and across peoples, then we're looking for what does that nation look like and what does the kingship of Jesus look like? Mm-hmm. That's what's supposed to be comprehended in the simple nomenclature of kingdom Christian. I think it's becoming less and less of that. It's becoming more of a like a descriptive adjective of a certain group of people. And I'm, I, for one, I'm not super comfortable with that. But uh-huh. that's how language works. What can you do? Yeah. As the ideas of the early church and how it fits in under the kingdom Christian banner, there's a very approach what what i think we hear generally at followers of the way would say is that we we there's a reaction against the protestant idea of sola scriptura because the the problem with sola scriptura is that it's just me and my bible and instead of the one pope in rome we all become our own popes at our own desk and i become the arbiter of truth I become the one who decides what's right and wrong. And with any kind of intellectual honesty, that feels like a dubious premise. Like, I I can't be the one that's going to figure it all out and make it all right. I can't be the one that has the the hermeneutic paradigm that's going to resolve the issues. You know, Mm -hmm. and none of us live like that anyhow. We go to meetings where we listen to preaching. We talk to brothers and sisters. We read books. We receive input and inspiration from all kinds of places. None of us really live like we're the sole arbiters of truth. We just have created doctrinal paradigms where that's the case. So in interest of saying, what's the other alternative? Because we're not going to Rome. We're not interested in their pope. 
and we're, we don't want to be our own popes, how, how do we then resolve the dilemma? How do we put some checks and balances in? Because what I think what we recognize here at Followers of the Way is that every person is reading the Bible through an unlimited number of lenses, some that they yeah. can see, some that they can't. I mean, the fact that I'm male, that I'm in the 21st century, that I'm in America, that I speak English, that I'm just add on my whole identity. Each one of the facets of my identity is a lens through which I'm looking at the scriptures, my personality, my inclinations, my intellect, all of these things are coloring and shaping what the scriptures mean to me. So, so how do I create a check and a balance on that? And one of the ways, and and I would emphasize one of the ways, is to look at the historic church. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, to return to the idea of kingdom, if you go to any country in in the civilized world where you find school children, they will be learning history. I don't care if you're Babylonian or Greek or American or Chinese, you learn history. Well, why, why do we do that? Because the idea of story, who we are and where we come from, is an important way of processing my place in the world. And that's, as, that's more true, I would say, for the Christian church than it is for the nations. We do need to know who we are and where we come from. We need to understand our sense of story in time. And so a, a retrospective look is important for us to be a comprehensive people, to know where we went wrong, where we went right, who are our heroes, who are our our Judases, who are our betrayers. You know, all these things make up a a group identity that's important that the church needs. And Mm -hmm. American Christians are woefully lacking in. Mm -hmm. So the other part that fits into the perspective of the early church is that there is a concept that many of us believe that the church was once delivered by the apostles. And so we know, obviously, that the Corinthian church was full of problems already in Paul's day. But I also believe that there was a special inspiration on the 12 as they went out and founded churches, that they did their job with power and they did them right. And so that they founded correct churches doctrinally, like what the apostles' churches were doing was what Jesus, their Lord, wanted them to do. They established in those churches what Jesus wanted his churches to be established under and on. And so the closer we can get to that, obviously, the better look at what we presume Jesus wants his church to be like. So that, but the the, the obvious problem is that there's a lot of subjective material in there, like what about the differences between the Eastern churches and the Western churches? You know, in the, in 150, you have the Quattro de Seminarian controversy where the, the Eastern church is having Pascha on Nissan 14 and the Western church is having it on Sunday and they have controversy. So all, you know, and the resolution in, in the early hundreds is, well, you do what your apostle told you and we'll do what our apostle told us. And they go their separate ways. So it's not like you can resolve every dilemma. The way that we practically use the testimony of the, of the early church, at least here in Boston, the way we try to, is we're not looking for a particular evidence. I'm not looking for a particular person that says a thing and then I hang my hat. Okay, well, we can't ever kneel on Sunday because chapter and verse here in Clemens Dramatis, it says you're not supposed to kneel on a Sunday. What we're looking for is a broad 
a broad perspective. So if I look for the 10 volumes of the Antonicene Fathers, and everywhere, in every place, I look up the issue of justification by faith, or a whole number of things, you can find unanimous consensus on a large number of subjects. And it's that unanimous consensus that's interesting to me. Well, all of it's interesting to me because I like history, but but what's what's important to me is where we find all of the churches agreeing. It's not the idea that all those churches were perfect until Constantine, but where you can arrange the entire Christian church that we have preserved for us, all saying the same things about one topic for 300 years and all over the place, that's a pretty good indicator that it's an apostolic doctrine. So when we get to a, a biblical controversy like free will, and you have your advocates who say, here's the scriptures from my side and here's the scriptures from my side, then we say, okay, well, what does what do the patristics say? What were they saying? And if they all say the same thing about it, I'm going to vote with them. That's yeah. how we use it. So hypothetical situation here, and, and maybe this is a, a bad example because it, it might be a hypothetical situation, but if the— the church in the 100s say um, unanimously agreed on a doctrine that to you just could not be reconciled with Scripture. What would you do in that case? So <clears throat> there are some church traditions that are like that. I mean, um, the perpetual vir virginity of Mary is very early, uh, yeah. and I don't agree with it because I don't think it's what the Bible teaches. I, I think they're— so, the, the early church writings are not just a thing. You know, we love, we're good friends with David Brousseau, and we love his Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, and it's a useful resource, but it can be easily misused. Because when you're reading history, you need to understand who's writing, if you can, who are they talking to, who are they talking about, and for what purpose. And all of those things color and shape each of those documents. And if you're not willing to dig in and find out what's really happening, if you want to just glance through and look up an index and find out what did they say about Matthew 5.32 and then read that and call that your early Christian doctrine, it's not really a good way to study the early church. You really need to understand all of what's going on that we can know about, like, for instance, um, uh, what's his name? The the uh, the rival bishop of Rome it escapes my mind. Anyhow, if you read about him in in the patristics, he's a terrible guy. He's a schismatic. He's horrible. He's a he's a monster. But when you look at the history, he's actually representing the earlier teaching of the church. And there's another mm -hmm. good case actually because his case is that the lapsed those that recanted under persecution couldn't be received back into the church. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I do think he was accurately representing what the earlier teaching of the church was. But I also don't think—I don't create a mythology around the early church. I don't think that they were comic book superheroes. I think that they were men. And, you know, I can understand if I lived in a time and a day when they were beheading my bishop and I was running for my life— that I would take a pretty serious view of those who recanted under persecution. That doesn't mean that that's the right, that doesn't mean that it's the perfect analysis of the situation. It doesn't mean that it's right for all times and all places and all things. 
But if I look back and I put myself in their shoes and I say, you know, if we don't hold a line, if we don't, if we don't, you know, gird ourselves up and make some real commitments about how we're going to endure persecution, there's not going to be a church left. So if you recant, then I'm just going to stick with Jesus who said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. I mean, it's not that they were making it up out of whole cloth. It's just that they were they were emphasizing things that were important to them for their time. And mm -hmm. if you take that material out of that context, it doesn't work right. Yeah, one thing that I've I've often heard that the early church believed is the the ransom theory of atonement yes. um, as opposed to penal substitutionary atonement. And for those of you who don't know uh, kind of what these terms mean, penal substitutionary atonement in essence says that uh, mankind sinned and therefore uh, deserves God's righteous wrath and judgment. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was absorbing God's wrath and judgment on our behalf uh, to be received by faith or faith and repentance, whatever. Um, whereas ransom theory um, states that when mankind sinned, and, and you can, of course, correct me on this. I'm sure that my Reformed friends will correct my uh, penal substitution thing. Um, but the, the ransom theory, in, in my words, says that uh, when mankind sinned, they sold themselves over to sin and, and death and the devil. And Jesus uh, was given by God the Father uh, to the devil as a ransom to purchase us back. And once we are purchased back, then God freely forgives us without demanding blood. And because he freely forgives us, his wrath is no longer on us. Um, at least that's that's the way I've understood it. And heard a lot of people say that that's actually what the early church believed. Um, is that correct, or were there any early church fathers who held to what uh, is often understood as penal substitution as well? Well, you know how N.T. Wright has famously said that in, in regards to Romans that we're, um, how does he say, we're, we're asking 21st century for 21st century answers to 16th century questions of first century texts. Yeah. yeah. And that happens a lot with these cases as well. Uh, I don't, I don't think that in most cases, the, the, the people who were writing about, about the atonement in the first and second, and third century were, were thinking about it the way that we are. They're not asking the same questions that we are about what Jesus's sacrifice means. But they are thinking a lot about what Jesus' sacrifice means. It's not being played out in an either-or category. There, <clears throat> that being said, what what you expressed as as the ransom theory of the atonement is the super dominant ideology that comes across when you read the patristic writings. This idea that Jesus gave himself up as a ransom, like a kidnap ransom, like yeah. The, the exact same way we would use the word ransom in modern parlance today. That notion 
that he was a ransom for us to, and I like how you said it, it's, it's all of the above, sin and death and the devil. Um, that, that is what they, they most commonly refer to. There are a few, a few citations, and I don't want to speak exhaustively. I'm not an early church scholar. I'm just an amateur, and I, I read a lot. So yeah. I don't want to speak authoritatively, but from, from what I have read, it's the super dominant emphasis of the atonement theory that's, that's taught among the patristics. There's some, <clears throat> there's some important things about that, and we embrace that ransom atonement here at Fowler's the Way. Um, one of the important things to me, uh, there's several, if you go back, let's start with the scriptures. First of all, Jesus says that exact phrase, I give my life a ransom for many. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that the only other, one of the few other places that that's used is, is when Israel's ransomed from Egypt. Uh, the firstborn are ransomed also. There's only a few times that terminology is used. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting that he says that. So he obviously wants us to think something about his sacrifices like that. The other thing is that if you go back to the Passover, which Jesus is, is the Passover lamb, like the real Passover lamb, at yeah. the Passover meal with his disciples when when he when he begins his sacrifice. And so go back with me and look at at what happens at the Passover. So the interesting thing about the Passover is that if we go back and look at what what the object of the sacrifice of the Passover is, it's not about defraying God's wrath. God actually isn't angry at the Israelites. He's trying to get them free. And the Passover lamb is the the vehicle that he's using to mark his own and to separate them from and, and to break the jaws of those that are holding him captive. So yeah. that's a that's a fascinating thing that I think it's missed in the in the um, atonement narrative quite a bit. But then there's another thing from Jesus's mouth in the parable, the kingdom of the unforgiving servant. There's a huge, huge issue at hand here, and I think this is what is probably the reason I'm the most ardent about the ransom atonement. So Jesus says, you know, the guy comes in before the king, he owes the king 10,000 talents, and he says, forgive me, forgive me, I'll pay you, I'll pay you, I'll pay you, and he says, okay, I forgive you. Who paid? Nobody. The king chose to forgive. And then he goes out and he chokes out his fellow servants, says, give me my 10 talents. And he gets called back in and his forgiveness is revoked. And that revoked forgiveness. Now, play the scenario back through the different atonement narratives. In the If we were having a penal substitution atonement narrative, give me my 10,000 talents. I can't pay. Please forgive me. And the prince walks in with a chest full of money and drops it at the king's feet and says, I'll pay his debt. You can go yeah. free. Well, that has all kinds of implications. For one, the king can't revoke a forgiveness if the payment's been made. For two, it's not forgiveness. And this is what I've always said since I've been a ransom advocate is that penal substitution has zero forgiveness. Titus, if you owe me 50 bucks and I come and I chase you down and I say, hey, give me the 50 bucks you owe me. And I start giving you a hard time. I say, I'm going to whip you. I'm going to thrash you. I'm going to throw you into prison, whatever the case may be. Give me my 50 bucks. 
and your buddy steps in between me and you and puts a 50 in my hand, I don't get to walk away and say, I forgave Titus the 50 bucks he owed me. Yeah. And that's the problem. And that's the problem that the atheists and the Muslims have with, uh, with the gospel as it's presented from the Protestant perspective. Why does God tell me to forgive my fellow man, but he has to receive payment in order to be forgiven? And I think that when Jesus says in the end of that parable, the conclusion is, so you forgive each other the way that your heavenly father forgives you, i.e., without payment. And if that's what Jesus is saying, then we cannot have a, a forgiveness atonement model that's based on the payment of sin. I also have mm-hmm. a lot of other minor sure. problems with penal substitution, but those are those are two major biblical ones. And yeah. those are so, talked about. So the the problem that a lot of people have with with ransom is they say what God's going to make a deal with the devil, and to that I say there's a couple answers. It's not, this is a place where the the patristics disagree. There's not a unanimous consensus about how that works because I don't think they're thinking about it in a like like a backroom deal some kind of way. But yeah. some of them refer to death that that death was the one that Jesus was given to and death overstepped its rights by taking Jesus. Some refer to the devil and some refer to sin personified. So, you know, I think in the Eastern mind, this can be a lot grayer than we, we 21st century Westerners want it to be. All that being said, if we go back and we look at, at the first chapter of Job or at, um, uh, in Kings and Chronicles with the prophet Micaiah, it does seem that God is entering into contests with the devil. It does seem that he puts things at stake. And it's very possible, from my perspective, that Job is a microcosm of the actual atonement. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, right now, I have some cognitive dissonance about the two theories, because in my mind, both theories— have good arguments um, supporting them. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on Isaiah 53, 4, uh, reading in the ESV. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. And, and then it says, Smitten by God and afflicted. So I know, I know you guys are not a fan of proof texts, <laughs> but... Scripture is scripture, and I'm I'm just curious how how you would speak to that scripture. Uh, do you happen to have a Septuagint with you in English? I do not. <laughs> I, I did I did see when researching this that the Septuagint has a different reading than I guess is the ESV based off the Masoretic texts or? Well, it's not a it's a, it's criticized with the Septuagint. But if you can pause for just one minute, sure. I'll grab mine. Go get your Septuagint. Let's get nerdy. <laughs> ESV says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I started reading in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. 
Okay, I have a parallel Greek and English, so you have to give me sure. a second to get my bearings here. You know biblical Greek? I, I, I So there are several here who study biblical Greek, I, I only in the rudimentary capacity. Yeah, I know there's a lot of levels of how much you yeah. can know. <laughs> my daughter actually knows it much better than I. Wow, than that's I awesome. Uh, I'm hoping that Sattler will become... Uh, a center for biblical Greek. Yeah. Um, 53 where? Um, four, verse four. So this says, He bears our sins and is pained for us, yet we accounted him to be in trouble and in suffering and in affliction. But he was wounded on account of our sins and was bruised because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his bruises we were healed. All we as sheep have gone astray. This isn't so. That's not controversial from either side. It's uh, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That is usually the controversy in Isaiah fifty-three. Yeah, fifty-three force in in the ESV says smitten by God specifically, and I noticed the Septuagint doesn't. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says he bears so, our sins and his pain for us. So what's the ESV based on? Is it, it's a different um, text in the Septuagint, right? Yeah, it's a Masoretic text type. Um, is the is the Masoretic older? Um... So that's a whole that's a whole big discussion. <laughs> uh, we would tend to think here that the Septuagint is the 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 family of text that the apostles were using, that probably Jesus was most often using. And that the churches received from the apostles, they they use that exact yeah. terminology. Um, so there, it's interesting when you look. Uh, there's a whole history. I mean, we could have a whole hour-long discussion on on uh, Old Testament texts, but the fact that it's it's most often used by Jesus and the apostles, and that it 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 is confirmed by the early church as the Bible that they were using makes it important to us. There's some interesting textual um, curiosities about the Septuagint versus the Masoretic. The story of the Septuagint is, uh, let's leave the folklore aside, somewhere a couple centuries before Jesus, um, there's a Greek version of the scriptures that's made. I think, here's, here's what I think one of our big prejudices is that's an unrealized bias. We think of Hebrew as almost like an angelic language, like God delivered Hebrew and God spoke in Hebrew and Hebrew was especially important. What we know, at least from the time of the first century, the Septuagint wasn't the only Greek translation of the scriptures. There were actually many. Um, mm. And and the um, Qumran sect, who nobody gets more credit for being zealous Jews than Qumran, um, was making texts in Greek. And the the ubiquity of Greek texts of the Hebrew scriptures all throughout the known world at that time show that it was very, very, very commonly used, even in Jerusalem, among Hebrew people. Uh, Jesus's use of it as a citation in, in and around Palestine make it an important bearing that there's not a, there's not the idea that the first century Hebrews, by and large, were not like King James only, but with Hebrew. Yeah, they were they were very well adapted to the Greek scriptures. So, 
what you have, the way the narrative plays in my mind, and it's probably a little bit of an oversimplification, you have believing Jews who translate, i.e. pre-Christian Jews, who translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek a couple centuries before Jesus. It's the text type that Jesus and the apostles and the church use. And then much, much later, unbelieving Jews, the Masoretes, and I don't remember if they're 6th, 7th, or 8th century, unbelieving Jews codify a bunch of different family text types. These are the Masoretes, and they did beautiful work. I'm not, I'm not criticizing them scholastically, but there are important differences between the Masoretic that's translated by unbelieving Jews and the Septuagint, which is done by believing Jews. For instance, if you talk to... Um, if you talk to a Jew, he'll take you to the um, <clears throat> the Emmanuel passage, and he'll say, that's not a virgin conceiving, you dummy. That's not what the Hebrew says. It just says a woman's going to conceive. Big deal. Of course, women conceive all the time. But we know yeah. what L Luke believed, because L Luke uses a specific word in Greek for an untouched woman, a virgin. So when Luke yeah. cites that passage, he doesn't use the word maiden. He uses the Greek word for a virgin. So Luke understands it to mean a virgin. So which text is he reading? Well, the Masoretic isn't going to exist for centuries, so that's not an option. But it's likely that he was referencing the Septuagint. There's a lot of different um, there's a lot of different things like that, and I'd love to talk to you about yeah. uh, the Septuagint as its own topic sometime. But the one yeah. that here in Isaiah 53 that that's usually most interesting to people is it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's in the Septuagint also? Um, well, it's not exactly. It's verse 10. Uh -huh. And it says, The Lord also is pleased to purge him from his stroke. Okay. And that's not at all the same as it, he was pleased to bruise him. Now, I don't think that the, the, the Masoretic text is being dishonest. I think the underlying text is probably faithful. But these are complex words and complex ideas. Here in the Septuagint, it, it says that he purges him from a strike. So he's had a strike and he's like to purge a strike is to clean it up, like to wash somebody's wounds. That's what's pleasing the Lord in the Septuagint. So the fact that these are, these are pretty complex ideas in a poetic verse of scripture that's deeply meaningful, but there's obviously some room for differences of, of position. It's not the ironclad um, penal substitution text if we allow the, the Septuagint as evidence that we, we were led to believe. Sure. Well, hey, man, we got to wrap up here. Um, we I feel like we could go on for hours, but I'd, I'd love to get you in dialogue with a Protestant on the show sometime, but we'll, we'll see about that. Um, but hey, man, thanks a lot for your time, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, glad to be with you. Thanks a lot, Titus. So, David, what did you think about that, bro? Yeah, there's some, some issues I did have um, about, like, maybe the early church talking about substitutionary atonement. Uh, we do have the epistle of Dionysius. Um, that's something you might want to look into. That that does give a clear view of substitutionary atonement. So, Who is Dionysius? Look it up, man. Uh, he was an early, uh, early church father. Just look it up, man. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting stuff. And he taught penal substitution? Yes, he did. Substitutionary atonement. I mean, it's pretty clear. 
Um, I, I would give you direct references, but uh, I don't have it with me right now. It's just off the top of my head, man. So I was, I've, this afternoon actually, I was studying penal substitution and ransom theory, and I believe in penal substitutionary atonement, and I believe in ransom theory, and I think probably all the other models are great contributions as well. So maybe they contradict each other, I don't know, but well, it seems like both sides... What? Well, half of you is saved. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yes. Half of, whichever side you're you're on, you could agree that half of me is saved. So yeah. both sides can agree to that. <laughs> at least get at least get half of you in heaven, you know. I'm just yeah. Either either but, way, half of me is. I'll, I'll be anyways. Honest, I'll be honest with you, bro. I didn't think this was that big of an issue. Yeah. The circles I travel in, this is not a huge issue. You know, I'm an apologist, so I, I deal with apologetic issues. Um, secondary issues are secondary to me. I, I'm a firm believer in the August, Augustine theory of, you know, in, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So, I mean, is I— Is that Augustine or Wesley? I, I thought was that was Wesley. Nah, he took it okay. from Augustine. I'm— <laughs> I'm fact checking you on that one later, fact bro. Fact check me, fact check me, because if I'm wrong, then you can correct me, and I'll and I'll be humble about it. You know I'm humble, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Totally. But, you know, I look um, at Christ's death as as a kind of like a prism thing. You know, there's one death on the cross, but when you look at it through a prism, it does a multiple multitude of things. Um, and let let me just read some of it off that I wrote down just to refresh myself. Uh, it sums up the story of Israel. Um, victory over sin and death. It satisfies the Old Testament law. It's uh, God's note to sin. Uh, God paying the ransom and God making peace for us. Um, I think you can fit all that also under substitu su substitutionary atonement. Yeah. What do you that sound good? Yeah. <laughs> it, that I think. See, the funny thing is, we all have the same images and, and metaphors that the Bible gives, then the nitty-gritty is how we interpret those metaphors. And honestly, these two theories of the atonement almost go beyond what the Bible clearly states. So it's kind of, in my opinion, it's us just sort of musing about what these images mean more precisely. Um, and I think it's interesting conversation, but like you're saying, I, I do think it's secondary. Um, and I think Matthew would probably disagree with that to a certain degree. And I have reformed friends who would definitely disagree with that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but hey, maybe I'm, we can get I'm, them I'm to, to... Yeah. I'm a little lighthearted on the issue. Um, one thing I did want to ask you is, is what was he saying about the virgin birth? I, I mean, I, I, I didn't understand it. First, it sounded like he was denying it and then confirming it later no, on. No, he was, he was saying that in the... Masoretic text. Masoretic. Of Masoretic text. Yeah. Of the Old Testament, um, the virgin birth is not included, I believe. And and okay. he says that in the Septuagint, it's the virgin it, it's in the Septuagint it says that Jesus was born of a virgin. In the Masoretic text, it just says he was born of a girl or whatever yeah yeah so so he was making a case for the septuagint with that example yeah because he was okay. saying the non-believing jews were the ones who came up with the masoretic text later 
Yeah, that's and, a different discussion. I mean, that would take a whole show to get through something like that. The and, minutes we got now. The, um, yeah, the yeah exactly. The reason why he was cool. appealing to the sip. The Septuagint, the reason why it came into the discussion is because Isaiah 53 in the Septuagint and the Masoretic yeah. text is very different. I actually came across that this afternoon before the show when I was researching, and I was like, man, this, <laughs> we need to get yeah, to the root of, the of that. Yeah, I'm aware of the issues. I have a different take on it, but that's something that's going to take a whole other view to talk about. Um, yeah. What was his – and another thing that, that just caught my eye was the issues with uh, the um, – the problem with Sola Scriptura. What was up with that? Can you explain that he, one for me? He, he's saying that none of us can arrive to, to the truth simply with the Bible in front of us in a desk. We need church history. We need our brothers and sisters. We need the church fathers. We need all of that to help us. I think what I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Yeah, but does he still hold the Sola Scriptura though? See, it was funny because I pressed him on it. I said, what if the early church fathers in Scripture disagree? Where would you go? And then, and at that point, he gave the example of uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary and how yeah. a lot of the early church fathers believed in that, and he doesn't. So I think if you pin him in a corner, he probably would say that Scripture does have the ultimate authority. He it does. It, I don't know. You we have to have him back on. He actually said that he would he wants to come back on and, and talk to a Protestant about uh, he was really interested in talking about nonviolence and like patriotism. Um, so I think some of my reformed friends will see this and will really want to talk to him about the atonement and maybe we'll have to have that later down the road, but I think it'd be cool to have him on to to talk about kind of his pet topic which I think is non nonviolence. Yeah. I mean, I do see Christ. I, I think there's a legitimate claim to his death being a, a legal payment. I think that's – I mean, we were bought with a price. Okay, so yeah, I mean like we talked about earlier today. I mean there's a lot of semantics going around, and if we got into this really deeply, we would have to uh, – I mean we'd have to sift through all that. Um, but uh, um, yeah, man, it, it was a good discussion overall, I think, I, I think anyway. Um, cool. My whole thing uh, with his – I think there's an analogy he was given about you know, that the king forgave with no idea. What was he saying yeah. about that? Like the king with – he just forgave or something. Without any payment being made. Yeah, and you see I don't, I don't buy that because why would Christ have to die at all if there was no need for that? He was why? saying there's a need for a ransom. I guess there's no ransom in that story either, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't apply to me. I mean, I look at I look of, at Ephesians five. It's kind of a mute point, right? It was, right? I didn't even think about it, that. It, that's it, you, you see where I'm going, you know? I mean, it's just it, it boggles the mind there. So, like, I, I look at Ephesians five one, and I see substitutionary atonement. I see other verses uh, that that say say as much, and I could, we could go through them if you want. I don't think we have time. We well, we need to stop yeah. trying to rebut him with him out with him yeah, not on the show. I'm That's not, not real fair. Rebut him. I, I, I really I'm really not. But uh, just just these are just the things that popped into my head as like questions, you know. That I you know I want to put it to him not as a rebuttal but as as a question. Yeah. You know, you get you get what yeah. I'm saying. Well, let's have him back on. Let's have yeah, him back absolutely. on sometime soon. Yeah, I would love it. All right, bro. Well, All right, well bro. you take it easy. I'm gonna I'm gonna sign off. Thanks everyone right, for yeah. listening. Um, what's your blog again, David? I'm at the Virginia Apologetics Union on Facebook.
so you can reach okay. me. Okay. All right, brother. Cool. You'll be good. All right, man. Sleep all well. Right. Good night. Bye. All right. Peace. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Proselytize or Apostatize. I hope it was helpful for you in your journey toward truth. One thing you can do to really help us out is leave a rating and review. It helps other people discover the show. This episode was edited by Christian Sconewald with music by Kyle Skriloff. All right, see you guys next time. Thank you.